0: Matthew 7 1 through 12. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time that there there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Well, people
1: will not let you get close to them to help unless they know you're for them first and that you're actually able to help them. Those two requirements have to be met before a person will let you move towards them to help them. This is especially true if they're injured or hurting. So, like even as grown-ups, splinters are not a fun thing for us. It's this little tiny thing that can really like profoundly affect the littlest things. But when you're a kid and somebody else has to take the splinter out, imagine the traumatic experience that could be. So our oldest Eli is prone to drama sometimes, Um, and he, the kids run around all summer without shoes on, and so they'll come in once a month with some pretty sizable splinter in the bottom of their foot, which is already a pretty sensitive space, and Eli would just kind of come unglued at the thought that me or Anna was gonna come to him and with these tweezers and take this splinter out, and it was, I mean, the first time or two, like it was a two-person job, one of us holding him down, (laughs) and the other person doing surgery on his foot. What had to happen, though, because this is a recurring event in our house, is um, those two things had to be proven to Eli every single time. I had to hold him and say, Eli, we're going to be careful. We love you. We're not going to hurt you. We need to take this out so it doesn't get infected and hurt more. It's going to be okay. And then Eli wanted to know, well, did you ever get splinters when you were a kid? That's what he wanted to know. And he'd say, do you ever have to take splinters out of your foot? I was like, yeah, Eli. And I told him the stories of when I was a kid, I'd get splinters in my foot or all the other times I'd taken splinters out of other kids' feet. And those are the two things that allowed him to let me get near to a very, very sensitive spot that was painful and raw. And what allowed, enabled him to let me help him. Jesus is talking to disciples about how we're to get close to each other and help each other. And he's saying for that to happen, for you to allow another brother or sister in this kingdom to come near to you, particularly to a very sensitive, raw spot like your sin, your struggle, You will have to be convinced that he is for you or that she's able to help you. And for you to go to a brother or sister in that predicament, you will have to make sure they know that you are for them and that you can actually help them. That's what kingdom community is like. We say every week, I didn't say it tonight because it's in the passage, we're a community that want to meet each other where we are but not leave each other stuck there. This is a different way of saying the same thing. For this to be a safe place, for us to be safe people, doesn't mean it's a pain-free place or a problem-free place or a sin-free place. It means we are people who are being thoughtful in what it looks like to have the right to go to a brother or sister in need or have people come to us in need and help us. So Jesus says, this is what my kingdom is supposed to look like. This is what community is going to look like in this kingdom. So let's listen to him and see where he takes us through this passage. Jesus has been talking a lot about eyes lately. If you've been here the past couple of weeks, you know that if you have a paper Bible, you can flip back to what comes right before this. Lots of talk about your eye. And what he wanted to know about your eyes two weeks ago, last week, and in this passage as well, is are they healthy? Are your eyes letting light in? Are your eyes seeing accurately who God the Father is, who you are, who others are? Or are your eyes barely open and not a lot of light's getting in? And there's because of that, there's great darkness inside of you, anxiety inside of you, fear inside of you. Jesus wants to ask his disciples: Are y'all seeing what I'm seeing? Are you seeing who I'm seeing? And so last week he was really focusing in on, do you see the Father the way I see the Father? Or are your eyes closed and you're harboring these dark intuitions we were talking about, these conspiracies that we are prone to believe about God that makes us suspicious of Him? Or are your eyes opening and you're seeing Him as He is, a detail-oriented, proactive Father who doesn't just have affection for His sons and daughters, but feels affection for His sons and daughters? Jesus wanted to know in the passage before this, how do you see yourself? Are you a spiritual do-it-yourselfer, and it's just you and, a, and an operating manual getting through life? You see yourself as an orphan, racked with either anxiety or the need for control to get back in control of your circumstances, or do you see yourself as a beloved child that the Father lavishes love on? Now Jesus is adding another question to the list and he says, how do we, even in this room, let's be specific, how do we see each other? How do you see the people in the room, the people you're in relationship with? And particularly, how do we see and relate to each other when someone else's sin is most visible to you? Where they're falling short, that personality quirk, that insecurity, uh, the way they throw you under the bus with their humor, to look better at other people. The procrastination, the always being late or not being considerate. What do you do next when you think of the roommate, even now, who just annoys you because of the way they treat you or what they don't do in the house? The kind of relationships Jesus wants his disciples to have in this kingdom, this counter kingdom, are relationships that are charitable, that are gracious, that are generous, that are thoughtful, that are slowed down so that we have the opportunity to be thoughtful and not just react, knee-jerk reactions. This happened, and I spouted this off. This happened, and I did this, but this happened, and I slowed down, and I thought, and I prayed, and I sat on it for a while, and I responded at a time where I was able to respond in a more helpful way. But Jesus isn't naive. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to insiders of his kingdom, people who are following him, who seek refuge in him, who believe that he's life. And Jesus presumes that in these circles, there's problems. He's honest and he's realistic. He assumes that these people in the passage, these people tonight, are visually impaired disciples who have trouble seeing each other the right way and seeing God the right way and seeing themselves the right way. Everyone in this uh, example that he gives had obstructed vision, every single one of them, and needed a brother or a sister to come to them and to remove what was obstructing and distorting their vision. So for all these reasons, to help our visions and to change the way that we look, and re- look at and relate to each other, Jesus shares these thoughts that we're talking about. And Jesus knows these are hard words for us to hear. Uh, they're, they're hard words to speak. They're hard words for us to hear. And so he's a great preacher. He's a great teacher. And like any great teacher, he knows that bitter medicine goes down best with honey. And the honey in this situation is comedy. I don't know if any of you are Shakespeare fans. I would not consider myself a Shakespeare fan, but when Anna and I were dating, we were living out in Colorado at the time, and one of our date nights was to go to this Shakespeare in the Park thing, and it just sounded like a fun thing to do. So we went. And um, I'd been bored silly in high school when we were reading through all this Shakespeare stuff. I was like, this is old English. No one can understand it. No one gets the irony or the humor or the whatever, the rhyme. What is this stuff? We hear it in the park, and these are professional actors and actresses who do this Midsummer Night's Dream play every night of the summer. And it was brilliant, and it was hilarious because the actors, like, they're definitely doing a lot of improv in the moment, but they're hamming it up with the audience the whole time. You know, they're doing their stuff up here, and they keep looking over their shoulder to kind of embellish the moment. The way they delivered the lines that had bored me in high school finally made sense to me, and I'm like, man, Shakespeare was a comedian. This stuff's amazing. We lose some stuff when we translate languages, like jokes especially do not translate very well. You know, you're hearing some speech in English and someone's interpreting into Spanish or Chinese or something. Humor doesn't translate very well. Idioms don't either, and so we lose the comedy of this, but Jesus is basically gathering his disciples around him. He's saying, so y'all, let me tell you about this optometrist, or this eye surgeon better yet, this eye surgeon's got a patch over one eye and a huge cloudy cataract on the other, and they wheel in the patient, and the doctor turns to a nurse and says, I'm Dr. So-and-so, I'm going to be operating on you today, and the patient's looking wide-eyed at him like, you're letting this guy operate on me? And Jesus is better at comedy than me, but the, it would have been a moment of levity. That's what would have happened when he said this. But he's saying actually a really heavy, piercing thing that goes down a lot easier with a laugh. And then he goes on, he describes other people as pigs and dogs later. He talks about dads tricking their little kids and giving them snakes instead of bread. He's pushing the comedic element so that we would remember this. And so that it would actually get inside of us past our defense mechanisms of this is too hard for me to hear. So Jesus kind of slides in instead of coming directly at us with just some lectures on how to not be critical towards our brothers and our sisters. He wants us to remember what he's talking about. Now, what does he want us to remember? Basically this. I'm going to give you the big idea, and then we're going to kind of side, pull over to the side for just a second and talk about what he's not talking about. Here's the big idea of what he is pushing home to us and what he wants you and I to remember. Unresolved sin or self-righteousness in the heart of a Christian distorts his vision. Undealt with self-righteousness or sin in the heart of a Christian blinds a Christian's eyes to just about everything. At, At least God, at least yourself, at least other people, and probably everything else as well. And that's what makes you and me in that situation unqualified and incapable of moving towards another person in their moment of need in a sensitive, raw spot and trying to offer help. We are bound to botch it, and it's bound to destroy a relationship instead of restore a relationship. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's saying to us, be careful. Because if we're not thoughtful in how you and I are meeting each other where we are, but not leaving each other stuck there, if we're not very careful in how we do this, we will be unhelpful and we will be unsafe. And this will become an unhelpful, unsafe community of people. It will become not a counter-kingdom to the world. It will become a counter-kingdom to the kingdom of God. A place where everybody hides. Nobody's honest. Everybody's performing in front of everybody else. Nobody can come and say, brother, I love you. What's going on with you? So Jesus gives us this illustration, and in the illustration, he proves what I just said. And again, we're just sticking big idea right now, but Jesus is saying, like, if you have a redwood tree in your eye, how are you going to see anybody else? Especially something as delicate as using some tweezers to to pull something out of someone else's eye. Like, I've never allowed someone else to touch my eye. I don't know if you have, but there's some things that's like, people will be like, hey, there's a bug on your back. I'll let them deal with that. Like, brush it off. And maybe sometimes someone says, hey, you have something in your teeth. So I'll go like, you know. But if someone's ever said, hey, there's something in your eye, I'm never like, oh, could you come get it out? I'm like, thanks for letting me know. I'll go deal with that later. Um, I'll go look in the mirror and handle it myself. But, Je- but Jesus is saying, imagine your eye is so filled with debris, dust storm just blew in your face or something, and y- you can't even open your eyes. How are you at a healthy, helpful place to go and offer aid to somebody else? What he's going to do in just a minute is actually say, you weren't tr- in those moments, we're not even trying to help and offer aid to other people. We're trying to punish them with an appearance of help, or with an appearance of correction or critique. But he's saying in that situation, we'd be the last people on, the earth, on earth to go and try to offer help. Okay, that's a big idea. We're gonna come back to that. If that's still fuzzy, don't worry about it. We're coming back. But I wanna address an elephant in the room before we get any further of what Jesus is not saying, because each generation has a few Bible verses that people in the church and out of the church all know. Maybe when I was a kid, it was John three sixteen. For God so loves the world, whoever believes in him. In, in this day and age, it's at least Matthew 7 verse 1. Judge not, or the more conversational phrase of like, who in the world are you to judge? Who do you think you are to tell me how to live my life, or that this decision's not a good decision, or that this is truth, right? Everybody knows this, And so it's a particularly misunderstood and misused um, verse in the moment, and I want to just get this off to the side before we go any further so that we know what we're talking about and what we're not talking about. Jesus is not saying um, using judgment is off the table. He's not saying turn a blind eye to each other's faults. You know, basically stick your head in the sand to what you're pretty convinced is a disastrous decision your roommate's making. He doesn't say, just look the other way. She's doing her, you do you, mind your own business. He's not saying, mind your own business. He commands the opposite, in fact. Verse 5, he says, once you see clearly, after you've done work in your own vision and your own heart, go to your brother and sister and help remove what's obstructing their vision. So Jesus isn't saying, just don't worry about other people, focus on yourself. He's saying, focus on yourself first so that you can be healthy and helpful to go and help the other person. He's not saying turn your brain off and abandon all critical thinking, your ability to to distinguish between life and death, good and bad, what is from the Bible and what's twisted out of the Bible. Jesus isn't just saying like, you know, basically turn your brain off and don't make any judgments anymore about what's true and what's not. Jesus assumes basic brain activity in his disciples. And he's not calling you to jettison that. Discernment is always a good thing in the Bible. Scrutiny is always a good thing. Critical thinking, logic, all of these things are always commended. Storing up scripture in your head so that you can discern truth from error, myths, and cultural fads from what's actually true. Jesus is not saying privatize your faith and you do you and just believe it for yourself, but never mention it out loud because what if somebody else has a different answer to the question, what's truth? To the contrary, earlier in the semester we studied it, Jesus said you are the light of the world, the salt of the earth. The best, thing, the best gift you have to give to Athens and the UGA in your years here is your distinctiveness, your uniqueness as a son or daughter of the living God, as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ who is gracious and generous. And he's saying, do not hide that. Don't privatize that. Publicize it, because the public desperately needs it. So Jesus isn't saying, when he says judge not, he's not saying privatize your beliefs and hold your cards close to the chest. And he's not saying adopt an attitude of who's to say what the Bible means. Just after this, again, if you have a paper Bible, you can look. The paragraph right after what's on your page is Jesus saying there's false prophets coming. They will twist my father's words, and they will say, come this way, this is life, this is liberty, this is freedom, this is the you you always wanted to be, and he'll say, watch out, their wolves, and they will eat you. So in no way is Jesus saying, turn down the dimmer switch on your intellectual abilities or your spiritual discernment. All of that is very much in play. What he is saying, though is put off this criticality and judgmental spirit, a condemning spirit. Uh, I'm up here and you're down there. I'm superior to you. I'm better than you. That's what he's saying to put off. He's talking about um, attitudes of heart where we have an eagle eye for another person's fault, but we're blind as a bat when it comes to seeing our own. We see with laser precision other people in this room and where they've fallen short, but just clumsy vision for ourselves. To see a speck in somebody else's eye presumes you're looking for it because, I mean, afterwards you can do a little case study, try to see something in someone else's eye. It's about impossible. To see a speck in another person's eye means you're like an inch away looking for a speck. Ah. I found it. Look at all these specks in your eye. Jesus is talking about that kind of attitude that is looking for a reason to dismiss a person, especially a brother or sister in the family of God, that only needs a shred of evidence to say, I I knew it. I knew you were one of those people. I don't have to deal with you anymore because we don't have to be friends anymore because you're one of those people. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, do not judge. Don't climb up into the throne and act like, pretend like, think like you're God. Nobody will give account to you or me, ever. Everybody will give account to God. So Jesus is saying the throne is already occupied. There's not room for any more people to climb up on there and to play God and to render verdicts over other people and to render, you know, judge, jury, An executioner over other people. That kind of criticism, Jesus is saying, is corrosive, not constructive. It's a condemning kind of attitude. It's an arrogant attitude. And again, I want to ask you, switch roles. Would you ever want an arrogant person who lacked basic self-awareness of their own faults and struggles, would you ever want them to be the person you go to in your moment of need or the person to help you figure out and untangle that sin pattern you feel really tangled up in right now? none of us would go to that person for fear of how they would treat us. Would you ever go to a person who's reactive and knee-jerk, hears one sentence and is already just kind of like piling on the advice, doesn't really care to hear you? Would you ever want to hear correction or have someone get as close to you as your eye and removing an obstruction in it who hasn't sat with that thought or that, that sense of, I think I need to help my friend see this. I'm not sure she sees it. I'm not sure he sees it. If they haven't sat with that for a season, prayed about it, thought about it, filtered out their own biases, filtered out their own attitudes. Tim Keller is helpful here. He says, when you, when we, when you and I criticize, here's the question for our hearts. Are we trying to get our friend back and save the relationship? Or are we criticizing to punish, and to cause pain, and to get rid of them from our lives? One is commendable. The other is condemned. So let's go back and do a little case study of that friend, maybe a roommate, uh, who you feel like really is. In your heart of hearts, you think they're making a bad decision. You think they're going to get hurt, or you see them kind of drifting away from the Lord, and you're like, this is not going to end well. And I know in your heart of hearts, in a moment of sobriety, when you weren't caught up in whatever, you wouldn't want this for you either. What do you do between you having that analysis or that, that thought about that friend, and then you winding up toe-to-toe with them saying, can we talk? These are some things, I mean, I just threw down a list from the passage, but um, are you bringing to mind the times you've been at a similar spot all the times that what was actually a terrible decision looked really appealing and attractive to you for whatever reason? Are you consciously bringing those moments back to mind? You're like, I get it. I'm experienced too um, with getting all twisted up. I get in the moment, I get in the mood, I do whatever. I I knew in my head it wasn't going to help, it wasn't going to lead anywhere helpful, but I did it. Are you bringing yourself down to their level in that sense and saying, you know, I'm actually quite experienced at the same thing I think I need to draw, bring to their attention? Are you owning the humbling reality that you're a federal fellow struggle, that you have eye trouble too? That presently you need the Spirit of Jesus to correct your vision as well? Are you praying for the Lord? to let you be an instrument of healing and restoration in this person's life? Or is he not anywhere in the picture because you've never prayed about it? That's really a litmus test for whether you're trying to help a person or hurt a person. Is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit anywhere involved in the thought process of what it means to to come and help and to come in healing in a way that could actually Help my friend's eye open back up. Keller comes back and he adds a little bit more detail here and he says, is the attitude of your heart constructive or destructive? Is it restorative or is it punitive? Are your critiques to faulty friends intended to be medicine or poison? Are they intended to lay a burden on their back so that maybe they'll wake up and come to you and make amends or are they they intended to lift a burden? Again, the point that we open with, people will not let you get close to them, and they especially will not let you move towards sensitive, real, raw parts of their lives unless they're convinced you're for them and that you're able to help. So Jesus is condemning that harsh, cruel attitude of heart that's distancing, and this is a very gentle, approachable Savior and Shepherd who's training his disciples to be gentle in their approach to other people. Ian McLaren, an old Scottish preacher, said, be kind. Everyone is carrying a burden you know nothing about. Part of this helpful approach is assuming that you at best might know half the story. And it's charitably assuming there's pieces to the story that I don't know about that would make this make more sense to me if I knew about it. And I can come to this brother or sister with humble questions that are legitimate questions instead of declarations and say something like hey help me help me understand what's going on right now I don't want to assume the worst I know you I know you I know you there's got to be something going on for for what's been happening in the past couple weeks to go on like If you don't want to share with me, I understand, but I just want you to know I care and I've noticed. That's what he's talking about. Everyone is carrying a burden we know nothing about, and so we ask about that burden before we ask if we can help carry it. Jesus is bookending this entire section with basically the golden rule. It comes in verse 1 and 2, and it comes in verse 12, and it kind of bookends everything else in between it. You know the golden rule. He says here, in everything do to others which you would have them do to you. Basically says that's the law. That's the Ten Commandments, the fulfillment of it. He says in verse two, In the same way that you judge others, you will be judged, and the measure that you use will be measured to you. So the question is how do you want to be treated when others see your worst? How do you want to be treated when others see you fall? Or make a series of really foolish decisions? How do you want to be approached when your heart is hard but you're really sad? You don't go to church anymore, you don't go to stuff like anymore, like this anymore. But beneath the hardness of heart, you miss God. And you miss seeing anything. How would you want to be approached? Jesus is not saying, don't do harm to each other disciples. Jesus is saying, do love towards each other. The don't do harm thing is easy peasy. You can go dig up ancient manuscripts from any religion, and that's there. Do no harm, basically. Don't do anything to other people that you wouldn't want them to do. And it's a lazy principle. It's basically, um, as long as you don't kill somebody or really, really hurt them, you're doing fine. Jesus' ethic was always, let's not talk about what you shouldn't be doing. Let's talk about what you were made to do. You were made to love. You were made to be generous. You were made to give grace. You were made to bear patiently. You were made to tell the truth. Do to your brothers and sisters what you wish they would do to you, and you don't have to wait for them to be doing it to you to do it. Jesus puts the onus on every pair of shoulders in this room, He says, friend, child, son, daughter, you, you get, you begin doing love towards those around you the way you would have them do it to you. What if this was a place where we were all concerning ourselves with that? What if the church was a place that was known in our society as a place that was doing that? Each of us individually was most concerned to do to the other people in the room and the people not in the room what we would most have them do to us. Real quick, before we wrap up with the last chunk of 7 through 12, we got to address verses 6, or sorry, verse 6, which is hard to know what to deal with, and I don't presume that I know exactly what to deal with, but there's a lot of thought on this, that this is a, a moment where Jesus is saying something that does appear several other places in the Bible, where he basically says, look, if you go to a a friend, if you go to people, and with good motives and a heart full of love, you are trying to share with them the goodness of the gospel, the grace of Jesus, You're, you're literally trying to help and to lift burdens and to open eyes and to serve them in love, and they continually reject you, repudiate you, ridicule the gospel, and it happens again and again and again. There's plenty of places in Scripture that say, shake the dust off your feet and move on be done with it, and move on. And that's a sobering thing to hear if you're one who continually repudiates and resists and rejects the gospel. And Jesus knows you're in present company to hear these things, and it is intended to sober you. Don't presume on infinite opportunities to repent and flee to Jesus take the opportunities he's bringing to your doorstep every single day. But is that what Jesus is saying in this particular moment? I don't think so. And the reason why is, if he is, I'm not sure exactly how it fits with what he said before and after. It seems a really out of place. A really out of place moment to say that. What he could could be saying what I'm more persuaded he might be saying, is that disciples, church, when you and I are not doing the heart work that we've been talking about, the self-humbling work, the self-reflective work that we've been talking about, when we kind of just go out into the world, um, kind of guns blazing with all the stuff the world is doing wrong and the culture is doing wrong, and there's judgment, and there's a superior attitude, and there's condemnation left and right of all the places they're getting it wrong. And there's not humility in us. I think what he's saying is you make the pearl of the gospel, which the New Testament refers to it as, odious and odorous and repugnant. Like throwing precious, priceless pearls into a trough of mud before a bunch of pigs and dogs. And Jesus is using cultural terms of the day that referred to people groups, those outside the kingdom, non-Jews in this particular moment he's talking about. He's using the language of the audience, and I, but how does this apply to us? Does this make sense? Can you see how the church could become repugnant to a culture because of a judgmental, condemning spirit that's not a charitable, life-giving, gracious spirit, that's not a forbearing spirit, that's not a Christ-like spirit, that's not a missional spirit? You don't need me to talk you into that. You grew up in the answer to that question. Perhaps it's one of the reasons we are seen the way we are. And perhaps it's something Jesus wants on the minds of his disciples as they learn, as we learn how to love each other and as we learn how to move out on mission into the world with the pearl of the offer of salvation and rescue freely in Jesus Christ. A God who does the work for you because you couldn't and wouldn't and who loves you. And conversely, what would we look like to the world if, like I said earlier, we were known for a humble spirit, for owning our faults, for being quick to repent, for raising our hands the fastest? Me too. I know what it's like to be trapped in things that I hate and that I know are killing me. What would we be known for? Where do we end tonight? We end with how do we have hope to change and grow? Because Jesus said, everybody in his hearing, everybody in the group that he was talking to was visually impaired and needed to go through the process of getting this log out of our eyes so that we can approach each other in humble love. So what do you and I do to grow and to be able to move towards each other in this way? It's verse 7 through 12, and it's really, we're going to be brief here because this was the the fullness of what we talked about all of last week. Where do we find the Father's grace to us in this passage? Well, number one, look at how God treats you by looking at how he tells your brothers and sisters to treat you. Christian, your father has just instructed every other man and woman in this room to come to you in gentleness and in thoughtful understanding and in tender uh, truth-telling not guns blazing. Your father just told everybody else to check themselves before they come to compassionately check you. He just told them to humble themselves before they try to help you. And then he told them to come to you and to offer help. Do you see his love for you and what he tells everybody else to do towards you? And if that's how he instructs the other people in the room to love you, do you think he loves you in a similar way and in a superior way? He does. So don't miss that. And if you have friends coming to you right now who are trying to love you by telling you the truth and say, where have you been? Where are you? What's going on? Let me in. Are you receiving that as the Father's love for you? Or are you just resisting that because you don't wanna hear it? And in the same way Are you seeing the love of the Father in Jesus' re-description of the Father? He's circling back. He's done this repeatedly. He's circling back again, and he's saying, every time I talk to you about anxiety or anger or fault-finding, I'm going to come and I'm going to tell you about my Father again. I'm going to tell you about Abba again, which is a a word that doesn't appear in any of the other language of first-century Judaism and how anybody talked about God, unique only to Jesus. And he said, think of your Father as Dad. And he's like I'm going to describe him one more time to you. I'm going to ask you one more time, what do you think he's like? Do you think he's a fa- you think he's like a father who wants to give you good things? I don't doubt a lot of you believe God gives you good things. Do you believe he wants to bless you? Do you believe he's the kind of dad who's excited to be a dad? Or the kind of dad who's always grumbling about the kids and how they ruined his life and took away his freedom and he can't wait till they grow up? Does God the Father enjoy being a father? Does he delight being your father? Is it his good pleasure, as Jesus says in Luke 12, to give you the kingdom? And are you praying for these things, he says as well. Do you see him as one that you can ask these things? ask him for a more humble spirit ask him for more clear eyes ask him to help you help your friends Jesus is saying do you know an approachable father that you can ask and ask and ask and seek and seek and knock and knock what I want to end with is the dilemma that some of you may feel because you might say well Ben that's what I've been doing Year one, year two, year three. That's what I do. I pray, I ask, and I just don't know if I see much of an answer, much softening of heart. I was thinking about this with the Braves. I heard all the post-game interviews the other week when they're all going around and talking not just about the game, but the past five or seven years. And they all describe the same story of, you know what changed is we finally got to a point where we wanted this bad enough that we actually sought it and we actually made it happen. Same with Kirby. Kirby knows the team has to get to a place. If the team is ever gonna get a championship, first they gotta want a championship, and to want a championship, you gotta experience the lack of it, the poverty of your present position. The words that Jesus uses here don't just say ask, it's a, it's a present progressive, it's at, keep asking, keep seeking. Keep knocking, and your Father absolutely, absolutely will answer, absolutely will give, absolutely will help. Maybe the reason you're still asking and still seeking and still knocking is the Father is ripening a deeper sense of want in your heart, because you will never seek Him until you want Him, and you will never want Him until you notice how much more you need him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for these words to us. You've spent a whole fall patiently teaching us and moving us along little by little. Now would you apply your good news to how we treat each other and how we see each other. There's situations and circumstances even tonight when we go home that we need this word to transform and help. So would you help us? We pray in your name. Amen.